from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Hello, my name is Sophia Besch. Welcome to the CER Bulletin podcast. The CER publishes six bulletins a year with three short pieces each that give you the lay of the land on three particularly important topics. And in the Bulletin podcast, the three authors each get five minutes to answer questions about their piece. This is our second episode of the Bulletin podcast, so this is now officially a series. This time I have gathered two researchers in our very professional podcasting studio, Agata Gostinska-Jakubowska, who is a senior research fellow here at the CER, and Ian Bond, our foreign policy director. And I have the third interviewee calling in, Camino Matera Martinez from Spain. So Ian, Agata and Camino will be answering questions on British foreign policy after Brexit, on EU reforms and on cybersecurity. And they will be particularly concise so that hopefully only 15 minutes from now, you'll all pause this podcast feeling much more knowledgeable and just generally happier and a better person than <laughs> before. With this optimistic setup, Agatha, let me turn to you first. You wrote a piece called The Member States and the EU Taking Back Control. And in it, you argue that the EU is getting more British after Brexit. Why? Yes, as you know, the consecutive British governments favoured a stronger say for the EU capitals in the EU decision-making process. And the outcome of the informal meeting of the 27 EU leaders, so without Theresa May being present in February, where they discussed the EU's future post-Brexit, very much chimes with this vision. So you give in your piece uh, three reasons, yes. three institutional reforms that might or might not happen. The first one is you say that EU leaders are taking back control of the procedure to appoint the next commission president. And that's the much maligned Spitzenkandidatenprozess. Could you just remind us what that process is about and why are EU leaders trying to scrap it? Yeah. So basically the Spitzenkandidaten process is the procedure whereby the leading candidate of the European political party, which wins the largest number of seats in the European Parliament, automatically becomes the European Commission president. And in other words, the Spitzenkandidaten process defines the European Council choice over whom to nominate as the Commission's future president. The European Commission and the European Parliament have embraced the system. Both institutions think that it increases interest in, in EU affairs, but the EU leaders are not buying this because basically the poll which was conducted in 2014 shows that only 5% of the respondents said that they went to the polls because they felt they could influence who the next Commission president would be. So this is not something that is particularly appealing to European leaders. Don't get me wrong. This is not to say that the European leaders will be able to scrap the Spitzenkandidaten process altogether because they belong to the European political parties which actually endorsed and are fully committed to the Spitzenkandidaten process. So from the Spitzenkandidaten process to another thing that the Brits never particularly liked, the dual-hatted presidency, which is a proposal by Jean-Claude Juncker. What's a dual-hatted presidency? What are potential benefits? And again, why are EU leaders rejecting this proposal? 
Well, the double-hatted presidency is the idea that in the longer term, the double-hatted president who would preside over both the European Commission and the European Council would make the EU decision-making process more efficient, would also improve the EU's functioning and would perhaps also decrease those inter-institutional rivalries. As you know, very often the Commission president and the European Council president, they squabble over over who should do what, but the EU leaders think that this is just another attempt of a power grab by the European Commission and also indirectly the European Parliament. Today, those prime ministers who govern in the European Council, they are being held accountable only to their national parliaments, right? And if the double-hatted presidency was put in place, that would basically mean that the European Parliament would have a greater control of the, over the European Council, mainly because it controls today European Commission president. It does not only elect him, but it can also sack him. Whereas today, it's only European Council president who only reports post-summits to MEPs, and that's basically it. Finally, and very briefly, <laughs> EU leaders have also, as you write in your piece, shown very little appetite for reducing the number of commissioners in 2019. Now, yes. that's a proposal by the French president Macron. He says that he wants countries to give up their commissioners, and he even suggested that France yeah. might do the first step. Why, and why is he not having much luck? Well, I think that he probably believes that leaner college uh, would improve the commission's work. And whereas I think many EU leaders would unofficially agree that reducing the number of commissioners would probably improve the commission's working methods, I don't think they would say it publicly. And this is because even if formally commissioners do not represent individual member states, they are very often a way for individual member states to navigate the European politics, particularly for those smaller EU member states. And I think that the green light to ditch individual commissioner could be seen simply by the public as betraying their country as interest in Brussels. I think no leader would want to do this. So it's probably not going to happen either. All right. So thank you, Agatha. In institutional reform terms, the EU is getting more British after Brexit. Is that true for EU foreign policy too, Ian? You wrote a piece called British foreign policy after Brexit hand in hand. Why does the UK even need a deal on foreign policy, which after all is a very intergovernmental field of policy? I think the uh, case of the poisoning of the Skripals has underlined why the UK wants to be as closely connected to its allies and partners after Brexit as it is now. The fact is that it's a pretty cold place out there in the world for one country on its own. And working with your allies and partners is therefore extremely necessary for, for any country, even for the most powerful countries on earth. I mean, it seems to me that what the British government is, is trying to do at the moment is to preserve as much as it can of the existing relationships that it has in the foreign policy area. Now, you're quite right to say that this is an, a largely intergovernmental area, but some of the things that the EU does with the decisions that it takes in an intergovernmental forum, such as imposing sanctions, nonetheless have to be enacted through EU mechanisms, through the Commission and so on. So the UK isn't going to get a seat at the table after Brexit, but it has to come up with ways in which it can preserve as much of the influence that it has now as it can. 
So in your piece, you discuss um, some of the models of cooperation with third countries that EU currently has in place. Could you elaborate a bit on that? You give three examples, I think, in your bulletin article. The three main examples are, first of all, the, the Norwegian example, which has very little formality to it. Uh, there aren't many structures at all. And the Norwegians rely on the fact that they stay very close to the EU and that they have certain niche areas where they have become you know renowned experts particularly in the area of brokering peace deals uh, you know they were instrumental in the 1990s in brokering the agreement between uh, the Palestinians and Israel but they've also worked in Colombia in Sri Lanka and South Sudan for example so they have a kind of uh, niche expertise which the EU also values and that gives them an open door to discuss those issues and to work with the EU to get the EU to use its leverage in some of those contexts. At the other extreme, the Canadians have got a, a treaty signed, a strategic partnership agreement, which sets out very formally, you know, how many meetings, what level. That creates a certain obligation on the EU to listen to the Canadians whether they want to or not. And the Americans have something in between. It's very similar to the uh, Canadian deal in terms of um, frequency of meetings and so on. But it's not legally binding. It's only a political agreement. And you see the impact of that from the fact that it doesn't matter how many times the agreement between the EU and the US says they should meet at summit level. The reality is that summits had pretty much come to an end under the Obama presidency and I think even more now under the uh, under the Trump presidency they're just not happening with the frequency that they're supposed to. So those are your three basic models and the UK is likely to fall somewhere along that spectrum. But the other really important thing is that all of those three countries would say that the formal machinery is one thing but it's also the level of informal contact that you preserve in Brussels and in your bilateral contacts in capitals around Europe that really makes a difference to how much influence you have. Now, the UK reduced its European political network in its embassies quite considerably in the last decade or so. Uh, now it's really going to have to think about how to build that back up again and how to make sure that even after Brexit, the representation that it has to the EU in Brussels has plenty of people working on foreign and development policy issues, as well as on trade and economic issues. And to conclude, next to these informal arrangements and the investment in personnel that the UK will have to do, what are your recommendations in terms of the deal that it should try to strike on foreign policy? Well, I would go for the treaty deal because that gives you a guarantee of certain formal events during the course of the year and you can use those as forcing events for getting agreement on particularly important issues or you know setting out a strategy for the next six months on some particular topical uh, international problem and the other thing that i think is really important for theresa may to do at an early stage is to copy what she's done in the security and counterterrorism area which is to underline the extent to which the UK wants to work with its partners in those areas and to take that and to say in the foreign policy area too we expect that our foreign policy is going to stay aligned with yours we are not going to do something radically different in our foreign policy after Brexit. Five minutes on the dot thank you great
Camino, then let me turn to you as our third interview. You wrote a bulletin piece that you called Europe's Cyber Problem. And in it, actually, you talk about different types of cyber problems. Could you start by explaining the difference between cyber crimes and state-sponsored cyber attacks? Yeah, sure. So basically, a cyber crime is, to put it quite simply, a crime committed online. And a cyber attack, it's an attack against state structures such as transport networks, airports, but also things like newspapers, for example. Cyber crimes are usually committed by private individuals, uh, so criminals, <laughs> which is quite straightforward, whereas cyber attacks can come from both state actors, like last year's WannaCry attack, if you remember it, which was attributed to North Korea, and non-state actors like the Islamic State terrorist organization. Okay, great. So could you just give us an example of a cyber crime and then talk about how the EU is dealing with that and what the challenges are for the European Union? Yeah, so a very common cyber crime is, for example, when a hacker steals someone's personal information and uses it for financial gains or other spurious purposes. This is called identity theft and happens quite often. Actually, the European Commission says is one of the most common uh, cyber crimes there are. The EU has been working on harmonizing laws and procedures on cyber crimes for a long time already. Actually, rules on online crimes and frauds date back to 2001. They are currently being reviewed, by the way, and the European Parliament um, is hopefully approving them very soon. And then also the European Commission has tried to harmonize other kind of cyber crimes, like what I was talking about, identity theft and other things like child pornography and the likes. And they have done that through a 2013 directive, which says that crimes committed online should carry penalties of up to five years or even more if member states want to. And uh, the European Union has also reviewed its counter-terrorist laws to criminalize terrorist offenses committed online. The main challenge that we have in this area is access to cross-border evidence. You know, when there is a crime, like, for example, say, you and me want to rob a bank in London in a couple of weeks when I'm there. I send you WhatsApp and I say, Sophia, would you like to rob a bank with me in London in a couple of weeks, you know, so that we can go around and buy uh, ourselves some nice clothes and nice shoes. And you say, sure, wh why not? Let's do it. But because WhatsApp is an American company, which belongs to Facebook, by the way, and Facebook has um, its headquarters in the US, possibly our WhatsApps are going to sit um, outside the European Union. So say the London police wants to prosecute us because we've robbed a bank in London. Um, they would have to go through a very, very lengthy and boring procedure to get data back from the US to get our WhatsApps conversation saying, you know, we are going to rob a bank at this time and we are going to do this and that so that we incriminate ourselves. And by the time they get this data, maybe, you know, we would have fled the country. So it is, it is a challenge and it is very important for the European Union to get all this e-evidence sitting outside the Union, but also because of all the problems of jurisdiction also within the European Union. It is very important, I was saying, for the European Union to get this problem uh, right and find some solutions. So moving from cybercrime to cyber attacks, 
Reading your piece, I was wondering, should the EU even deal with cyber attacks? Does it have the capabilities to build up cyber defenses against state-sponsored actors? Yeah, that's a very good question. Actually, at the moment, the EU does not have the resources, nor does it have the competences, by the way, to respond directly to cyber attacks. So you, we cannot expect the Brussels to basically, you know, if there is a cyber attack coming from Russia against, say, Bulgaria, we, we should not expect Brussels to do much operationally on that respect. But this doesn't mean that the EU should sit idle while the national capitals and NATO, which is also another actor in this area, do all the work. Because cyber is a transnational challenge where the EU can really be of help. Um, but in order to do that, the EU can do basically, in my opinion, two things. One is to make sure that there is a level playing field on cybersecurity across Europe by encouraging member states to be up to date and to be ready to respond to cyber attacks. The second thing that the EU can, can do is to help coordinating member states' responses to countries countries which organize cyber campaigns or merely allow this to happen. And I'm not thinking of any country at all, obviously. For all that, though, the EU need, needs to begin by understanding what cyber really is and what impact does it have on all its policies, from trade to the rule of law to criminal law to all other sort of things. And there are several ways um, the European Union could do this. Uh, one of them is by establishing a task force within the European Commission, which is something that I advocate for in my piece. But there are other ways... Um, um, which uh, I'm going to elaborate a little bit more in a forthcoming paper on this, for example, by joining a global conversation on the need to have some rules to attribute and, and to respond to cyber attacks globally. Okay, very nice plug for your forthcoming paper there. Maybe we can have a longer conversation once that's out. Thank you very much to Camino and thanks to Agatha and Ian for being on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Another regularly scheduled CDR podcast is out in two weeks. Bye. Thanks for listening to the CIA podcast and thanks to Beth Oppenheim, our editor. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud and follow us on Twitter, CIA underscore EU.